Glory to God whose power working in us could do infinitely more than we could ask or imagine. Please sit down. Good morning. You know, today marks the first Sunday in Lent. And if you're, if you're still humming the tune that Paul was playing, 40 days and 40 nights. 40 is a very um, special period in the Bible, and it's a period now for us, it's a penitential period for us as we, we pray, we fast, and we await the coming of Easter. You know, Lent has been observed in the church since about the fourth century. And in, in ancient times, you know, the fasting was quite severe. Um, in fact, um, you only ate one meal a day. Um, that's all that was allowed. There was no, no meat, no fish, no eggs, no milk products. All of that was forbidden. Today, however, you know, prayer and works of charity are kind of the main things that we emphasize. But I think it's a good thing for us to think about fasting too. And that's one of the reasons that we, we have our Lenten program where we're, we're just getting a very light soup and bread. So we're not asking you to, to fast for a whole week or even 40 days. We're just saying on Wednesday evenings, if you were to normally go and, and have a, a regular meal, let's not do that. Let's, let's do something lighter than that. And we invite you to come here and do that. And the second part of this is, as a congregation, um, we have invited everyone to pray the prayer attributed to St. Francis. And we have cards out in the narthex for you. Um, and actually, it's on page 833 in your Book of Common Prayer. And know that when you're praying that prayer on a daily basis, the whole congregation joins you in doing that prayer, saying that prayer. So what we've invited you to do during this season of Lent is really not take anything on, to not, not, take any, not give up anything necessarily, but to push that door open into your prayer life and, and say the prayer of St. Francis with us. So uh, that's enough of the commercial on that. Um, I found a quote this week that I really think fits today. It's, it's from quotes that make you think. And it's said to be a Christian is to not, not to have that hole, that need, that awareness of finitude erased once and for all. Rather, to be human is to accept that we are finally created for a relationship with God and a relationship with each other. We are created for a relationship with God and a relationship with each other. I don't know about you all, but relationships are very important to me. And many times our relationships identify our identity, who we are. So for example, you know, our grandkids, and you may have grandkids that do this, or you may have children that do this, they're constantly trying to figure out who's who in the family, right? And they do that via relational classification. So they'd say, okay, you know, Nana is mommy's mommy, and grandpa, grandma is papa's mommy. And that's how you get your identity. And, and Uncle Greg is papa's twin brother. And you, know, you are identified. And, and some of you may know this as, you know, um, at one time I was called Courtney's dad or Taylor's dad. I mean, that's, that was my identity. Um, think about that. And, and, you know, as I'm thinking about this, 
I realize how unbelievably and totally relational your identity is, right? Your identity is relational on the others in your life. You know, we like to think of our identity as something that we personally have created and something that we have nurtured. Um, but no, the truth is that our identity is inescapably embedded into our relationships, into our relational identity. I mean, does that make sense? Can I get an amen? Okay. That just makes sure everybody was awake. So, for example, I, I mean, I can't be a dad without kids. I can't be a spouse without a spouse. I can't be a grandpa without grandchildren. I can't be a brother without another sibling. I can't be an uncle without a niece or nephew. A teacher can't be a teacher without students. And the list goes on and on and on. And in a very real sense, your identity is created by those around you, those people that are in relationship with you. And anything I might say about myself, my identity, is always connected to the relationships that I experience with other people. And I think this relational identity is a key ingredient to us understanding the lessons that you just heard. It's relational. And I'm going to outline a little bit, maybe one view of this relational identity in the, for the gospel reading. But I invite each and every one of you to take what I'm going to tell you and apply it to the Genesis reading, because it's, it's relational too. And I think you'll understand that in just a minute. You know, each of these stories tells a story of temptation. And we may be tempted to tell these temptation stories in terms of position or power, but perhaps instead let's look at them in terms of a relational identity. You know, at baptism, at the baptism of Jesus, Right before this, right before the gospel story you heard, the sky opens up and a voice announces, literally naming Jesus, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Then like immediately afterward, Jesus is out in the wilderness and is tempted by the devil, also known as the tempter of mankind. So don't think that just the devil tempted Jesus. I think each of us are tempted by the devil as well. And we'll get into that. But the devil questions the very identity of who Jesus is. And he had just gotten it. He had just been baptized. If you really are the son of God, the devil says, are you really? Can you prove it? And the devil asked Jesus to prove it by using his power to turn these stones into bread, to call upon the angels for help, and offered him, all of this that you see shall be yours if you but fall and worship me. Basically, what's he trying to do? He's trying to get Jesus to change his identity, to change who he is. I mean, imagine this. The devil is trying to steal the God-given identity that Jesus just got and replace it with one of his own that was manufactured. Have you ever had your identity questioned? Have you ever had an identity crisis? Well, I'll tell you, I have. I'm going to tell you a quick story. As many of you know, I'm an identical twin brother. I have an identical twin brother, Greg. Monozygotic, okay? Of the same egg. We are mirror twins. He does everything with his left hand except right. 
He saw me writing with my right hand and he wanted to copy me. But we're mirror twins, so we look exactly the same. You look, I grade first on this side, he grade first on that side. Now, of course, we're both gray on both sides. But we are mirror twins. And I'll tell you, um, when we were about four or five years old, we really looked alike. No one could tell us apart. In fact, my grandfather, Logan, he'd come up to me and go, hey, what's your brother's name? And I would go, Greg. And he'd go, Jim, how you doing? <laughs> He couldn't tell us apart. He really couldn't. A lot of people couldn't tell us apart. In school, they just, we adopted this name. We were called Twin Brother. Hey, Twin Brother, how you doing? Because they couldn't tell us apart. So I'll tell you, um, there were some older girls that lived across the street from us. And they, we were in Muncie, Indiana, and they thought it would be a good idea to play a little trick on us. Because, you know, we were a five, and they were probably eight or nine, maybe ten. And so... One of the girls started calling me Greg, and I'm like, no, no, I'm not Greg, I'm Jim. And she said, yeah, yeah, you are. I'm older than you are. I'm wiser than you are. And I know, I know who you are. You are Greg. And I'm like, no, no, I'm not Greg. I'm Jim. No, you're Greg. Now, you have to understand something about twins, and that is, you know, first of all, all of our lives, people have said, um, I wonder what it's like to be a twin. And then I've always wondered what it's like not to be a twin, right? Twins are very close together. In fact, some twins get so close that you have to stop them from developing their own language. So twins can develop their own language between each other. So um, in, in first grade, they make sure to separate twins so that they don't do that. They are connected. They are connected. Um, I, I prob I, at five years old, I knew Greg as well as I knew myself. And I would say maybe today, the same's today, maybe, I don't know. But you have to understand that we were so much alike, I got confused. Seriously. I, I, I remember distinctly being torn, not knowing who I was. And it's funny now, but it, it really wasn't funny to me then. And of course, I started to cry. And I ran into the house to find one of my parents, and I ran across my dad. And he said, what's the matter? And I said, I don't know who I am. And he said, well, you're my son, Jim. Whew. Now, unless he was playing a trick, I've been Jim ever since. <laughs> but I just, what would you do if you were me to prove that you were you? <laughs> I don't know. So anyway, it, I, I, we have these identities, and each of us has an identity. Now, Jesus, on the other hand, he wasn't insecure. He didn't get confused about who he was. He knew exactly who he was, and he knew his relationship with God. And he handles the devil beautifully here. He responds in a way that says, what does it mean for me to be God's beloved son? And how do I live out that identity in the world? And what would that relationship look like? And he doesn't, Jesus doesn't resist the temptation with brute force, which he could, or, or sheer will, which he could, but rather he takes sanctuary in his identity founded and obtained through his relationship with God. A relationship that implies absolute dependence upon God and identification with everyone else, with all other folks. Jesus will be content to be hungry as others are hungry, dependent upon God's word and grace for all good things. He will be at risk and he will be vulnerable as all of us are. 
finding safety in the promises that God has given to us. And he'll refuse to define himself or seek power apart from his relationship with God, giving his worship and allegiance only to the Lord God who created and sustains him. And even in the letter that Paul wrote to the Romans for the day, it offers us an abundance of grace and life through this obedience and dependence on God for his identity and our identity. Jesus also offers us an example, a refuge in times of temptation. And you say, well, how is the devil tempting me today? How are we being tempted? Every single day we are hit in our consumption-driven society by messages that constantly tell us we are not enough. There's a hole in each one of you. You're not enough. And these advertisements, they tempt us to fill that hole with what they are offering. And their intent is to create an imbalance in us so that we think we, we, we have a lack of confidence that we're inadequate. And it undermines our God-given identity that we have been given since our baptism as children of God. So they promise us that if we buy this certain car, or if we use this certain deodorant, or if we use this specific mouthwash, we will be acceptable. If we attain this level of financial success, if we do all these things, then we will be acceptable. But we know this is a lie. That's not really how it happens. They're trying to recreate our identity just like the devil was trying to recreate Jesus' identity in the story we heard, the gospel story we heard. We are trying to be recreated. This is what you have to do to be successful. This is what you have to do to win. We're constantly being told, you're not enough. You're not doing enough. You don't make enough. You don't love enough. You know, we need one of those holy LifeLock identity protection kits. This could be a great business idea for somebody. <laughs> we need, to, but we already have one. We already have one. Jesus. Jesus offers us a way out of this, a way to protect our identity by placing it in God's good gift and promise. How do you identify yourself? When people say, who are you? How do you respond? Do you respond with your relationship with God first? Jesus takes this relational identity to the final step. He takes it all the way to the cross, demonstrating how deeply God loves each and every one of us. Our identity is that we are the beloved children of God, and we are given this gift at our baptism. It's inscribed on our foreheads, that God has declared us worthy of love, dignity, and respect, and he's pledged to be with us and for us throughout all of our lives. No matter how bad it gets, he is with us. Now, I want you all to think for a moment right now, right here, this past week, when you felt inadequate or unworthy, or think of that attempt at your identity theft. Think about that a minute. Everybody got one? And now I want you to remember this. I want you to remember that God has declared in Jesus that you are enough and you are more than enough. 
Remember that you are accepted as God's own beloved children, and I thank, I thank God for each and every one of you. But perhaps remember this most of all. Remember who you are and whose you are. Amen.